fellow travellers, and welcome to podcast 176 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. And today we have a guest with an intriguing take on travel and tourism who will be talking to us from a rather special part of the world, Oaxaca in Mexico. Chris Christou. And welcome, Chris, from damp, chilly London. Uh, And I imagine it's not Hmm. quite like that in Oaxaca today. No, no, not quite, gentlemen. Uh, it's the eternal spring, and uh, we're just getting uh, the, the, a little touch of uh, winter that, that we get here, you know, for a couple months, and, but it's sunny as per usual. What a lovely concept eternal spring is, and actually slightly better, I think, than um, endless summer, isn't it? Mm. Um, or forever autumn, for that matter. But um, we'll, we'll stop short of Narnia and um, endless winter. Um, Chris, will you excuse us just for a moment and do feel free to heckle while we run through the parish notices, responses to our last podcast. And indeed, I think we might even hear the last but 32. But uh, immediately we um, were recording about talking about uh, the unusual ways with holiday money. Um, Well, a number of uh, people took us back to the dying days of the German Democratic Republic, which opened its walls to the West this month in 1989. And I was lucky enough to cross Checkpoint Charlie just before then. There was a great game where you could buy East German marks openly in West Berlin at an extremely favourable rate. Then you would try and smuggle them successfully across Checkpoint Charlie um, and then at the same time having to make an official change of cash to comply with the entry rules. Um, And uh, Julietta got in touch and said, ah, well, a bunch of Aussies thought it was a great idea that they could get East German marks so cheaply on the black market in West Berlin that they didn't know they couldn't use them internationally. So they went back into East Berlin um, and spent days just trying to get through them. And Matthew Woodward says, I still have the schnapps glasses I purchased because I simply couldn't otherwise spend my compulsory currency exchange. Um, And of course, we're always welcome. And uh, your, your thoughts on uh, unusual ways with travel money. Uh, do you have anything like that, Chris? Um, the Mexican peso, indeed, all the uh, currencies in Latin America have a slightly slippery quantity uh, quality about them, I find. Yeah, certainly. I think, uh, you know, there's a kind of recent success uh, around the Mexican peso that's led a lot of uh, expatriates and digital nomads and tourists to, to kind of complain about uh, the, the current conversion rate. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, go figure, right? The success, the success, pardon me, of, uh, of another country's economy uh, uh, kind of contributes to a, a general uh, unease among, among uh, foreigners. Yes, quite. Go figure. Uh, well, luckily, we-, well, we shouldn't laugh, should we, actually? I mean, do you, do you feel that you have actually suffered from this as well or not? Um- uh, not so much, no. I mean, most of my work is uh, in Oaxaca, in Mexico, for Mexican pesos. You know, I think most most foreigners, most uh, you know, people who weren't born here, who live here, uh, don't exactly uh, uh, make uh, local currency. So yeah. I imagine, but I so I imagine, yeah, it absolutely does yeah. affect uh, a lot of people here. But uh, myself, not so much. Well, we don't have the. Uh... We we don't have the problem of um, strong exchange rates for the pound, and I dare say we will find many Mexicans, mm. and they're very welcome here, um, coming on holiday because it's so 
affordable. Yes. Um, and Mick, forgive me, You, I think you've got a blast from the online past with something which slipped between the digital floorboards. Well, that's very true, actually. Yes, I, uh, I, I discovered this message which somehow slipped under our radar and it dates from um, February this year. Yes, uh, that's uh, what, 11 months ago, uh, 10 months ago, and comes from our regular correspondent, Rebecca Halpen. It followed our podcast about interesting hotels, uh, uh, number 143, would you believe? And uh, Rebecca sent us this very good message. Um, Hello, Simon and Mick. On the subject of hotels, I've just stayed in a very interesting one in Copenhagen. The Hotel Astoria is right next to the central station. It was built in 1935 and designed to resemble a steam locomotive. Train conductors used to stay there, and it still retains many original features. For example, the room doors have a panel which the conductors would hang their uniform in. <laughs> and this panel can also be accessed from the corridor outside, and so hotel staff were able to take the uniform away, clean it, and return to the door panel, all without disturbing the room occupants. Um, great room occupant, sorry, uh, yes, the... <laughs> Great effort has been made to preserve parts of the hotel from that time, like the revolving doors at the entrance and the decor and the soothing jazz music playing in reception, which are also in keeping with when it was first opened. We chose the hotel based on its reasonable price. Well, I've got to say apologies for the oversight, uh, Rebecca. This is quite a substantial delay, even by the um, uh, often um, tragic standards of our own railways. Mm -hmm. But it did strike <laughs> me that station hotels are often very interesting, aren't mm -hmm. they? I mean, uh, Chris, um, uh, Simon and I sort of often go uh, trekking in the Pyrenees, uh, well, wow. often, uh, approximately once a year. And mm -hmm. uh, Two or three years ago, or maybe it was four or five, um, uh, we stayed at something called the Hotel, the Hotel Parada in um, Puig Serra, which is an extremely eccentric Spanish town in the Spanish Pyrenees. It, it's on three levels up a hill, and you actually go from one level to another by lift, which wow. is most unusual. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the very modern Hotel Parada is entirely incorporated into the still-functioning railway station building, which is a good hundred years old. Um, anyway, mm. sorry for the diversion, yeah. Chris, because we want <laughs> to hear all about your podcast and website, which is called The End of tourism now do tell us why you chose that title uh yeah so the podcast uh, was launched and i began organizing uh the kind of production around it in january 2021 and then it was launched in september 2021 so very much uh in the depths of the plague of the pandemic oh, yeah. uh, and so we were currently in what for many people was uh the end of tourism or at least uh, you know a major pause and uh, I guess, you know, for me, uh, it was this question whether that time and what the future might hold for us could be the end of tourism in the sense of mm, the world knowing nothing else. If tourism just came back and uh, essentially extended itself to kind of all parts of, of, of life, like in certain, in certain places where the economy is almost entirely... Uh, dependent yeah. on tourism and and nothing else. And then the possibility of the end of tourism being something like 
maybe the beginning of a new or perhaps very old kind of uh, hospitality, uh, a very old kind of traveling that um, that slows us down to the extent that that we are forced to be strangers, foreigners, um, um, visitors, guests, as opposed to tourists, as opposed to kind of these figures, these fleeting figures in the lives of other people that, you know, perhaps we get to know for a few days, but, but generally uh, that's the extent of it, right? Uh, Chris, is such an interesting narrative that you come up with. And of course, I look at everything very simplistically and I think, well, tourism is a wonderful vehicle mm. for moving cash from richer countries mm. to poorer countries, creates lots of jobs. Um, human to human interactions are generally positive, although clearly there are many concerns about the kind of um, – here, here's the tourists, mm. and here are their servants, and and that is that is worrying. But um, I'm I was particularly struck by a line from your self description saying these are dispatches mm. from the resistance. And um, if tourism is a major global employer, it would be economically disastrous, wouldn't it? If it actually came to an end, or am I being too literal? Mm. Uh, no, absolutely. I think. Um... You know, the vast majority of people in tourist uh, places, uh, we use the term destination, although, you know, they're much more than that, uh, generally rely economically on the tourist dollar. You know, you might not be a hotel worker, you might not be a tour guide, but if you have even just a convenience store on the corner in the in the downtown or, or a central area or perhaps an area where uh, visitors, tourists stay, then you are benefiting from that part of the industry. Right. Um, and so it's it's fascinating in part because so many of uh, the social movements that exist, especially within cities these days around uh, the right to housing, uh, gentrification, you know, with issues um, such as Airbnb. We see tourism as kind of this common thread that runs through all of them, uh, whereas yes. whereas like some will say, like, you know, we're fighting for our local environments in the context of the construction or the proposal of a new airport, or we're fighting against the, the gentrification or culture loss in our neighborhood. Uh, so, so they don't specifically uh, speak or say that, you know, hey, we're anti-tourism. And in fact, what's been fascinating about uh, finding these movements and speaking to the, the you know, activists and, and local people is that very few of them are actually either anti-tourism or more specifically against the tourist, against the foreigner, right? Very, very, very few of them are. Uh, in fact, the vast majority are basically saying like, you know, we don't want people to stop coming. Like we, we do want a degree of, or the capability to host the other, um, but the dynamic within which it happens and the infrastructure that kind of houses that relationship uh, is is very much something uh, these these movements and, and local people are both against and at the same time embedded in and benefit from. Mm -hmm. So it's this extremely nuanced um, kind of uh, context that forces us to uh, to to become to to invite a deeper thought to um, 
consider the complexity in ways that we otherwise uh, don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, you've coined a term "radical hospitality" on 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 your site, um, and I, I, I think, uh, Chris, that's a corrective, isn't it, to um, the sort of more damaging consequences of global tourism uh, that that you've described. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of intrigued by that that phrase, "radical hospitality." So, what, what does it actually entail? That's a very good question, and it's something I, I do my absolute best to try to avoid defining in any way. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Go on. In part, it go. No, no, no. It's quite all right. Uh, I would say, you know, in part because uh, the the word "radical." Uh, means root uh, or, or rooted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the etymology of the word. And of course, hospitality means many things to many people. Uh, but generally, I, I think, you know, can be loosely defined, generally defined as the way in which uh, someone is with a stranger or a guest, uh, not necessarily in a transactional relationship, but just in, in, in any way that someone might be with a stranger or guest uh, in their home or in their house or in their place, in their neighborhood, for example. And so, uh, you know, radical hospitality is something that is uh, definitely used quite a bit uh, within uh, theological uh, philosophy. So like um, ecumenical uh, or, or religious philosophers who have tried to find a way to wonder how can we get along? How can we live alongside people who have completely different worldviews than from us or than us and have there be peace, right? Have us not, uh, you know, see them as totally alien or, or worse, right? And so radical hospitality uh, for me anyways, you know, outside of the kind of religious purview has this kind of notion of being local in nature, right? Rooted. And that every place and every people uh, has their own kind of radical hospitality. Every family has their own kind of radical hospitality. And generally, these are things that that cannot be standardized. So I kind of make the distinction between uh, industrial hospitality, which is generally speaking, when we go to a to stay in a hotel or when we go to um, eat at a particular restaurant, uh, a chain restaurant in, in, for example, like maybe Domino's in Japan or McDonald's in, in Oaxaca that, that, you know, while there are often kind of like local flares to the, to the menu, uh, they, the, the operation is, is the, the business is operated in such a way that, you know, what you're getting everywhere you go, and it really doesn't differ that much. So this distinction between industrial hospitality, something that can be standardized and homogenized, and then the radical hospitality that will always be different everywhere you go. May I ask, um, if I'm not mistaken, you're from Toronto in Canada, which is one of the least homogenous places I know. <laughs> it's you can you can walk for half an hour across Toronto and go through ten different ethnic neighborhoods. It's wonderful. Right. Now you 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 live in Oaxaca. Um, I'm really interested, Chris, in why you chose this place and. Aren't you being a bit of a tourist by being there? It's wonderful. I love it, but I love it as a tourist loves it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't actually 
choose Oaxaca? I guess I did on some level, but it was certainly, you know, a decision based around not wanting to be in a major metropolitan urban center anymore, right? After three decades. And so Oaxaca was the first of uh, the first choice among many on, on my list of places around the world that I had traveled to with friends uh, where friends lived. And, uh, you know, after about six months of living here, wondering whether I was going to stay or not, I, I kind of just realized, you know, that I needed to stop moving. I was very much a, a part-time backpacker or a kind of semi-permanent tourist that just kind of worked to travel in my 20s. And, um, and then, you know, after six months of being here, I just realized I needed to, to stop being or trying to stop being everywhere or anywhere and just to be somewhere for a moment. Ah. And the years, the months and years went on and, you know, it's been close to a decade now that I've, I've been here. And I guess in the context of my travels of not really understanding the degree of consequence or, or effect that I had on the places that I visited, um, I would try to instead honor the place that I now live in, being able to see what I couldn't working in the tourist industry and also living in a tourist destination, being able to see the things that I couldn't kind of in the past as a, as a backpacker, as a tourist, right? I have been uh, to Oaxaca. Uh, actually, I went there for work um, many years ago um, mm. to do some uh, reporting and i thought what an incredibly um fascinating and attractive place it was as indeed um, pretty mm. well everybody who who um, uh, goes to visit it uh, thinks and i mean particularly that that incredible double square which is at the sort of heart of the city isn't it it is uh, what what's that actually called i've now forgotten mm. the plaza is it the plaza mayor yeah, the zocalo mm. isn't it yeah in, in zocalo <laughs> right exactly uh, it definitely still retains this kind of sense of the commons, this sense of this place where people can go to be around, you know, uh, fellow Oaxacans, uh, foreigners, musicians, uh, buskers, uh, etc. Uh, but but there is certainly, you know, as Oaxaca gets more and more uh, attention. Uh, nationally, internationally, etc. As a result of you know being a, just such a beautiful place and and having a beautiful culture, that the events, for example, that are put on in the Zocalo tend to crowd out um, that kind of the you know the the local nature of that culture that people so often come to uh, come to see and come to experience, and it kinds of you know it often becomes this kind of more choreographed version of that that's put on by I guess the you know the tourist ministry or bureau here you actually um uh, I mean apart from your writing and your podcast you you actually have a I, would you call it a business um which is a sort of well it it's connected with tourism isn't it food tourism and it's called uh, uh, Oaxaca Profundo. Um, is, is, is the aim of that to try and bridge this kind of gap, you know, between um, uh, uh, visitors and um, real local people and culture? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> it kind of started 
in 2016, I think. And I had never been a tour guide before. I had never done public speaking before, <laughs> but I really wanted to try to honor, you know, the research that I was doing and the work that I was doing with uh, uh, local cacao producers, you know, the, the farmers who make the, the beans and the seeds that, that become our chocolate here in, in Southern Mexico. Ah. Uh, and to try to create something for... <laughs> Uh, visitors, tourists um, that might go beyond uh, the surface. So do they work like um, classes, Chris, or is it more like a kind of guided tour, if I can use the uh, sort of, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the old fashioned sort of terms? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of those things. You know, it's been very hard for us actually to define what we, how we would describe, how we would, you know, market these things. Maybe we'll just call them storytelling sessions. Oh, oh, uh, Chris, look, this is a very, very compelling story that you're telling. And I hope that our lovely listeners are appreciating it too. But if I can just take you back to our previous podcast, which you may not have had the joy of hearing yet, but um, <laughs> you can always look it up, podcast 175. We were at the World Travel mm. Market, which is a big event in London where you get tourist uh, boards, destination marketing organizations from across the world who basically just turn up and say, please send us more tourists. Mm. Please, we're desperate for them. Yes, we'd like them to be nice and interested in, in culture and wanting to go on one of Chris's tours. <laughs> but actually, frankly, anybody will right. do, even Mick, um, <laughs> and just send, send us loads. And, and that's, that's a reality, isn't it? That is the industry that you are um, uh, reporting on, participating mm. in. But, I mean, it is a, this massive um, engine of, uh, of, of tourism that um, it's very difficult to turn off. Right, right. And I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone can, to be honest. You know, some people claim that it is the biggest industry in the world when you take into consideration all the kind of peripheral industries that, it, that involves it or vice versa. And... Um, you know, people, people need to put food on their table, you know, and uh, I think, you know, that, uh, f for better or worse, uh, necessarily comes before our ability to kind of question what's in front of us in terms of uh, the times that we're in, what's at stake, uh, and then also to be able to kind of imagine things otherwise. Uh, I, I'm absolutely taken by this. I've, I think I, this is the um, the first good idea I've had, which obviously I've stolen for you from you, um, <laughs> ever, which is a business idea, which is some um, training us to be better tourists. So, mm. how would that happen? What would what would you teach us, Chris? Mm. And you, we'll split the cash that I earn. Okay? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I take a lot of these. Uh, understandings from the people that I interview, the people who are, you know, kind of on the front lines of the the struggles, the political struggles, the environmental battles uh, in their home places, and the same question that I posed to them, and and you know, it's it's so much of it is uh, kind of a degree of courtesy, uh, not just when or once, uh, once once, pardon me, uh, you're you're in. Uh, a foreign place or, or, you know, a, yep. uh, a different country, but do, you know, to do your research beforehand. And I think there's degrees of this where some people will, will say, you know, like 
yeah, you know, you know, watch at least at the very least, watch an hour long documentary on the history of the place you're going to. Uh, some people yeah. would go a little further and say, you know, like if you're coming to Mexico, for example, uh, take a Spanish class, you know, before you come, right? To, to be able to speak to people um, in their own language is to be able to communicate uh, with people on their own terms. Um, it allows you to be a guest as opposed to kind of this just person who just was suddenly dropped in and doesn't know how to kind of uh, navigate. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, there are, there are people who will go kind of further as, as kind of extreme perhaps as I've heard it. And they'll say, you know, like if you do your research, if you've, you know, read a couple books or, you know, spoken to some locals before you come and the time isn't right, you know, then don't come. And I think, uh, you know, a good example of this is kind of what happened uh, in the last few months in Hawaii uh, with these these massive wildfires that destroyed um, parts of Maui and Lahaina. Yeah. And, yeah. and the local people, the, some of the governments as well, but the local people were saying, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous that the government can still allow tourists to come in here when it's, you know, an emergency disaster zone. And people have like a whole cities and towns have lost everything. Um, so, you know, a degree of tact yeah. uh, that we can, yeah. we can wonder about. And I think, you know, these are the, the kind of baseline suggestions and recommendations that local people have when uh, at least the people I've spoken to, uh, in regards to, you know, how to proceed. And, and, and so much of it, you know, I think in earnest comes from this notion of like, don't wait till you get here to learn about the culture, to study the language, right? Do your homework before you come. And there will be a degree of, at, at the very least, um, uh, I guess, insight or, um, respect uh just just listening to your words it makes me want to be immediately a better tourist which i'm not sure if i will be but um i'll never be as good a podcast presenter as you um <laughs> not least because i have to go from the deep thoughts that you're having to um remind people the how to get in touch with us which is to tweet mm. us or, or contact us on x at you should have bt leave us a message at uh, amazon.fm forward slash you should have been there of course uh, all Sorry, uh, Simon, I think open, it's, it's anchor. Uh, <laughs> you said Amazon. Oh, sorry, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you've oh. have they got, have, have they got to you. Uh, no, <laughs> I, sorry, I've been ordering. Yeah, they have, they have. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry about that. You can leave us an audio message. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. And of course, the uh, categories that are open include uh, unusual ways with holiday money, um, things that you pack just in case. And that might be my final question to you, Chris. So um, uh, do, do prepare for that. And uh, indeed, your favourite railway hotel or bar, controversially mine, is the Metropolitan Bar at Baker Street Station in London, which is actually the most beautiful Weatherspoons pub that I know. So let us know your secret station location. Um, so, And can I just interrupt and say, and also, um, any um, 
sort of reactions and thoughts you have um, uh, after listening yes. to um, to Chris and his uh, his about I think very um, sort of inspiring ideas about uh, tourism. Yes, and basically it sounds to me like we've all got to reboot our ideas of what travel and tourism is, which um, is uh, quite a thing. And so we're so grateful to you joining us. Here, um, have you had a think about um, the thing that you pack just in case? It's been a running theme, and that might be a pocket knife. It might be a, <laughs> a, 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 a special notebook. It might be all sorts of things. Is there anything that and you, you pack just? And in you case? quite often don't use it, but you pack it just in case you do need to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say I I need at least one, two, three books in my bag, no matter if it's a if it's a big piece of luggage or a little backpack. At least two or three books, and sadly, I never get around to reading them because you know, like many people, <laughs> I'm just trying to uh, take in and absorb and 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 learn uh, of some of the beauty that uh, is surrounding me in my travels. So I just wanted to say thank you to you gentlemen. Uh, it's been a great uh, honor uh, to speak with you today. And, uh, you know, may it not be the last time. And I wish you all the the best success in the world. Chris, that is so lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we don't have favorite guests on this program, but if we did, well, that's all I can all I can <laughs> say. Um, but uh, for, for now, from me, Simon Calder. And uh, me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.